This talk, The Invisible Mental Load of Motherhood, by Carol and Charles Cole, was presented at Community Training 2023. Carrot and Charles are parents to four children and are entering their eighth year at Veritas. Enjoy. Welcome to the breakout discussion on the invisible mental load of motherhood. My name is Kara Cole. This is my husband, Charles. We have been with Veritas since 2016. We are parents to four children, three boys, one girl. Our eldest son, Jonah, is entering sixth grade. Our daughter, Charlotte, is entering fourth grade. Our son, Benjamin, is entering first grade. And our youngest son, Oliver, turned five this summer. So he will be joining the Veritas crew next year. And we are delighted to be meeting with you all today to dissect a subject that deeply impacts all members of any type of family system, yet it certainly has the most profound outcomes and implications for the mother. So here is where we are going today together. The discussion will be separated into three distinct parts. The first part, I will be speaking with you. We will identify the sources and types of cognitive and emotional labor women carry. For the second part, I will be laying out something called the fair play method. It presents a framework and language we can employ alongside our spouses to rebalance some of this invisible work required in running a family and household. Lastly, Charles will join me to give the father-husband perspective distinct representation in this conversation, as well as to create an opportunity for he and I to share our experiences attempting to achieve a new type of communication and a division of labor within our family. We continue to learn and work pretty tirelessly together to redefine and reallocate certain roles and responsibilities, as this is particularly pertinent for home educating families And many mothers within our community have part-time and even some full-time employment. Likewise, contemporary parenthood must reflect the stressors and deluge of things required to raise a family in the modern world while still honoring biblical givens for marriage. The mental load of women is the focal point for the next 50 minutes. Nothing, please hear me say absolutely nothing in here, is intended to put men down, we are addressing how we can lift women up. Yesterday, one of John's definitions for good was appropriate or becoming, and Adam noted that things were deemed heretical if they didn't continue to echo the stories that have been passed down. This was timely, as we are going to examine generational narratives of what a good Christian woman, a good wife, and a good mom is. The mental load of mothers, all of the planning, noticing, remembering, initiating, worrying, guilt, shame, begins when we ourselves are girls and daughters, and it snowballs throughout our development into womanhood. It is compounded upon assuming the roles of wife and then mother. So for part one, the invisible load of the female. I'm going to roll through some statistics that are pertinent to what it means to be a female domestically and globally within the last decade um, and century. So in 1920, that's when the 19th Amendment was ratified. So compared to the history of humankind, for 100 years, women have had a formally recognized voice. In 1974, that's when women could open up a credit card in their name and therefore get a mortgage under their name without a male cosigner. The United Nations reports that over two-thirds of the world's illiterate population are female. 
because education is gatekept and an illiterate individual is easier to subjugate. The United Nations reports that worldwide one woman or girl is killed by a family member every 11 minutes. The US Justice Department reports that 71% of worldwide trafficking victims are women and girls. The US Labor Department reports that unmarried, childless women earn 82 cents to the dollar for their male counterparts of comparable education, the same position. That number goes to 70 cents to the male dollar. If that woman is a mother, that number only nosedives dramatically for women of color. Um, and specifically in our country, the CDC reports that one in four women are physically assaulted by romantic or marital partners, and reports that one in three women or girls will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. So some of these stats do or have impacted women in this room today. Um, other statistics serve more so to underscore that our freedoms are new and our physical safety, and therefore our emotional safety to some degree hangs in the balance. Um, this is a small snapshot of the backdrop in which our self-identity has evolved. It plainly shows our value continues to remain less consequential. So we internalize that bit by bit from girlhood on. Our value, our needs, are less consequential. Um, I'm going to start with the invisible load of the girl. Ready to start with the invisible load of the female. The invisible load of the girl. Uh, we share the understanding that information is largely encoded within our brain via narrative, right? It's stories that build our understanding of the world around us and our position and potential within it. The stories we are told within our youth prove to be particularly salient throughout the rest of our lives. So think about some of the books and cinematic narratives made for children. Specifically, think about the ones we grew up on. So, Uh-oh. Mm. The girl is obedient. The girl is soft-spoken. The girl is rescued. The girl is deferential. The girl is never dirty. The girl is very beautiful. The girl is so sweet that woodland creatures flock to her in song. The girl is so skinny that she would anatomically be unable to menstruate. These stories of what a girl is, or rather what a desirable good girl is, become entrenched in our worldview and the worldview of boys enjoying the same stories beside us. Think of the marketing narratives targeted at our girls. Beauty first, sweetness second. How are little girls affirmed? You're so pretty. You're so cute. I love your pretty dress. You're so sweet. And nothing is inherently wrong with these. I'm pushing 40. Somebody call me pretty, please. I'd love to hear it. Uh, but that form of feedback, coupled with the misguided value of girls assigned in narratives, it really sets us up to look outward to others for our value and to look at our outward appearance for our value. And sweetness all too often means you're too worried to advocate for yourself and risk someone not liking you or thinking you are not kind because good girls, they're kind. And then we grow up. We become women who are people pleasers and we do not know how to convey our opinion, preferences, boundaries, needs, the list goes on. And that's where we start drowning. It's the invisible load of the woman. We arrive into womanhood now kind of well indoctrinated in the belief that it's our job to adapt to the needs of others rather than learn to also advocate for ourselves and to look pretty while doing so, please. Women find themselves now more than ever on a hamster wheel of self-doubt and self-loathing. Um, I'm going to break script for a second. I want to pause and I want to share an iteration of what I have told my daughter every night since the first night I held her because I want the story that I tell her to be the loudest and I'm determined to drown out these narratives that sow self-hatred in the hearts of little girls and women. 
So this is something I say to her. So to the woman in the room, I'm gonna say it to you. The God of the universe took time on you. You bear his image. You are beautiful, you are formidable, you are worthy, you are good because he says so. And because he made it so. And then I end this with her. This is the last thing she hears from me every night. I love who you are and I love how God made you. I want that to drown the rest of it out. Back on script, okay. We put more stock in the notion, right, that our worth, our value is reflected in all the outward appearances we can manufacture rather than in how we reflect Christ. This isn't even touching the silent shame we carry for seemingly no reason. Women compulsively apologize in public for just existing in public. It's like, sorry, oh, I'm so sorry. Women compulsively cannot accept a compliment. They diffuse, they deflect. I love to self-deprecate. Uh, women have a shame forced upon them that isn't assigned to men who made the same choices or behaved in the same manner. From the more benign, like sassy and bossy compared to a male leader, to the more harmful names and labels we only have for women, ones that stick to their self-identity for decades because the voice of shame screams. The invisible load of the wife. And then you get married, right? You're a wife, you've metabolized a lifetime of narratives of how a wife behaves, some good, some bad, and everybody's excited to play house. So the University of Michigan studied newly married couples in the division of domestic labor. They found that upon getting married, women without children acquired an additional seven hours of domestic work a week. Conversely, men from this same study reduced their domestic labor by one hour a week. You might think, hang on, that math doesn't translate. Well, it does if you consider this. When women marry, they become wives, right? And we've been training for this since we were playing with our dolls. That's not good or bad, some of it, some is good, some is bad, but our storybooks and our princess movies have told us what to do. So it means, we know that means suit up and fill out the shoes of this idealized dreamscape of a wife. And so then what we have done right out of the gate is set in motion an impossible standard for ourselves within marriage. And we've set our own trap in which we will feel resentful that we're doing the lion's share of domestic work, even before kids are on the scene. Because balanced domestic sweat equity was in none of the stories we were told or in most of the marriages we observed as kids. We don't even know this is an option. We don't even know how to make it one. So, have you noticed how in a sitcom, a woman's frustration within the home is often the butt of the joke. Somehow the joke is not like this caricature of a, the negligent husband on beer four watching the game dismissing the needs of his wife. It's her, utterly exasperated, in the background, cleaning up the beer cans, folding the towels, breaking up an argument between kids, um, burning her hand on the dinner she cooked while the baby throws things from the high chair, and just for the heck of it, let's make her wait a punchline too. Won't that be hilarious? Um, that's funny. That's satirizing women's pain. So we feel ashamed of our frustration and exhaustion within the domestic sphere because a laugh track is routinely added to our overwhelm as a wife and mother. The invisible load of the mother. So before we march on, I wanna be absolutely clear that there's nothing I would rather do with my time than be in the presence of my children. They are the marrow of life for me. I think it's this systematic dynamic of maternal overload that is the problem, not the child. Not the child. Um, we're inspecting the hard parts right now before we move on to solutions and hope. So the emotional load. Motherhood is beautiful and excruciating. That tension will always exist. We can't escape it. Um, it's brimming with the entire spectrum of human emotions. 
We can look to nature to observe God's beautiful design that mothers, particularly mammalian mothers, are far more significantly invested in the care of their offspring. So more impactful than the previously mentioned cultural constructs which urge women towards the mantle of caregiving is of course God's design that urges us towards tending to our children in an exhilaratingly primal way. So we carry more worry and we remain in a state of perpetual vigilance out of sheer love for our children. That's good, and that is emotional labor. Furthermore though, this tremendous love which begets great care and concern establishes great expectations for both what the mother wants and what she is told she should do. Add to that our glaringly rapid world, and we've established a reasonable scenario in which parents, notably mothers, are going to be crushed under the weight of what needs to be done to run a home and raise children. Add to that the emotional load of a Christian homeschooling mother, right? This perception of a paragon. We believe others in our community to be the ever-patient, enraptured mother that we fall short of. So shame creeps in. And we strangle the things we can control to look right and perfect. And in our overwhelm and exhaustion, we begin to suffocate out the most important thing. We are building a temple within our children for the Lord to dwell in. And we are kept distracted from this most important work. The overwhelm of two do's and two remembers and the tidal wave of on-the-fly needs and emotions from our children, they can overstimulate us into a position of disassociation, impatience, forgetfulness, resentfulness, burnout. On and on, there lies caretaker's neglect. There lies minimal to no margin left for yourselves or for your marriage. We begin to feel like ancillary beings to our family members, right? Objects of their utility, surrounded by children, never more lonely, connected to all corners of the globe, never more depressed or anxious. Currently, the CDC posits that 28% of mothers are reporting as depressed. That number skyrockets for stay-at-home mothers or mothers within the first five years of a child's life. Anthropology resoundingly depicts motherhood as a multi-generational communal endeavor throughout the history of humanity. The idiom it takes a village was most certainly true. Not now, right? Not now at all. No one knows this better than a mother licking milk, blood, and tears, sitting alone in the dark, holding her firstborn, whom she cannot get to latch while she is devoured by her own hormones. Alone. The communal imperative within motherhood no longer exists, and so we suffer greatly. Everyone suffers when the mother suffers. Ongoing research at Caltech finds that tachykinin, which is a neuropeptide, it's increased upon prolonged isolation or loneliness. Read stay at home, work from home, homeschooling parents. As tachykinin increases, so does one's negative perception of the world around them, so does their aggression, fearfulness, anxiety, and specifically the freeze response to a threatening stimuli, whether that is real or perceived. That could just be a loud noise, but I think we all know what it is when you're so overwhelmed, you're like, I don't even know what is happening right now. Um, so this feels hard because it is hard. No one here is suffering from uniqueness in their shortcomings, disquieting thoughts, and less than rosy emotions towards the role of mother and educator from time to time. We are imperfect parents, educating imperfect kids, on a planet of eight billion plus other imperfect knuckleheads, all while we're just sitting here on a sphere that's seemingly dangling in infinite black space. Like, it's not a cakewalk. It is hard, it feels hard, because it is hard, and that is the job. And I want the job, I want the job so badly. But I do not want mothers to languish underneath it. And in the process, neglect the holiest parts of raising children. 
as Ben just relayed, keeping the first things first. There we go. Yet, our culture maintains the fallacy that a mother's identity is integrated into the performance and presentation of ourselves, our homes, and most certainly our children. A father's value and identity can be more readily extrapolated from those outcomes. Therefore, it's mothers who feel measured or judged by a wholly separate set of unforgiving parenting metrics. Thus, it appears in our benefit to care more, to try harder. So we go on the offense and caregiving and domestic labor. And because of this, fathers can comfortably suggest to their wives that many tasks and roles either aren't necessary or they're not that important, which is absolutely true. A lot of this isn't important or necessary. But again, we have been taught since girlhood to have a much higher minimum standard for everything. A good mom is thousands of specific things all at once, and if your children or domestic life don't uphold these, then it reflects on the mother, generally not the father. It might go something like this. Kid has dirt under their fingernails that need to be clipped. That's on mom. House has filthy baseboards. That's on mom. Kid brought a Lunchable to school this week. That's on mom. Kid plays video games. Bad mom. Kid still can't sit still in class or church. Bad mom. Kid is still in diapers at three. Mom. Kid comes to school with messy hair and breakfast on their shirt. Mom. This isn't even going into all the messaging around birthing and feeding our baby that we are catapulted into motherhood with. The curious thing to me is how we are more worried about judgment from our own fellow mothers because we all ascribe to these unhelpful, non-biblical narratives of what a good wife and mom is and does. Our most harmful current narrative generator are phones, obviously. The images we consume on social media, Pinterest, internet, whatever, it is undoubtedly spinning stories of motherhood that are tanking our mental health and they're giving us a false image of what is good and what is attainable in a way that nothing has before. So I'll just say this to myself and to all of us, put it down more than you want to. Because mothers, we have a responsibility to get granular in what matters most. Where can we eliminate some of the invisible labor for ourselves? So then we can petition for partnership with our husbands and rebalancing some ownership of roles and responsibilities at home that do actually matter. The mental load also known as the default parent. So while mothers can cut out a significant amount of mental and emotional labor by determining that those imagined benchmarks for motherhood are inconsequential, the fact remains that endless, endless menial tasks are required to make everyday life run. And those tasks fall on the default parent. Most often that's the mother, fine. The common example of this is a child bypassing the father standing right in front of them, right? to hunt the mother down on the toilet, to ask for help, or for an answer that the dad does or maybe should know, um, because kids are so very perceptive to the dynamic that mom holds all the information, has all the ownership over the details that make family run. So the default parent goes something like this. Shoes too small, mom. Is red dye 40 really bad for you? Mom. This single peanut butter covered knife in the sink, mom. We ran out of highlighters, mom. Every single athletic, athletic academic, and health form, Mom, soap dispensers out of soap. Mom, where's my retainer? Mom, who can kid four carpool with to basketball while kid one and two are at soccer, but do I have time to get kid three from swim and make it back in time before one and two are done with soccer and then race home to meet kid four getting dropped off for carpool all while starting dinner at a reasonable hour? Mom. 
Family members operate under the notion that the buck stops with mom, that if they let something fall through the cracks, mom's got it. Leave that pile of random things that belong to each of us on the stairs, and she could put away those things of ours in their 35 separate spots. It takes thousands of tasks and subtasks to make a family run, and commonly these tasks are not visible or do not render financial gain. Therefore, they can feel void of value to the person performing them and to those benefiting from them. Yet it is the minutia, it is the invisible, that allow the larger, more visible, more significant tasks and moments to take place. So therefore, these supplementary tasks, replacing the toothpaste, practicing speech therapy, researching driver's ed, troubleshooting that endlessly problematic baby monitor, defrosting chicken in the morning for dinner in 10 hours, noticing the band-aids ran out, Googling baby, rash, normal. You know, <laughs> they're not actually supplementary at all. These unnoticed and undervalued contributions are the fabric of life that hold our families and communities together. And the assumption tax on the default parent that she's got it covered is expensive. A mother's planning and action is often integrated upon the next need, the next action, five minutes out, five hours out, five days out. And this costs the default parent to the gain of other family members. Again, that's the job, but that's tricky. Even when mothers are resting, it is occluded by the weight of anticipating what comes next. When mothers lay their head down at night, there is a fullness, maybe of what needs to be done just to get out the door the next day, maybe what a, of their scanning the emotional needs of all their children, and still the mom can feel guilty that she has not done enough in service of her family at the end of the day while she lays there conceiving, planning, noticing, and worrying about everybody she loves. That is cognitive and emotional labor too. Um, our culture trivializes what we accomplish as primary caregivers. So, fed is best. I'm going to give an example, but fed is best, moms, okay? All right, take for example the CDC statistic that breastfeeding an infant for one year accumulates to 1,800 hours. So by comparison, a 40-hour work week without vacation is 2,080 hours a year. But somehow we still believe that our day-in and day-out domestic work Home education is unworthy when compared to the work outside the home for pay. We all internalize this and regard it as such to varying degrees, women and men. Um, because a salary says, I worked this hard today. A full kitchen sink and crumbly kitchen floors don't say, I sat with divine patience while my first grader took 15 minutes to stumble through just six pages of reading. I gently fielded an array of moods and looks from a preteen while we went through their essay draft. I held a fussy baby with the utmost care while simultaneously reiterating the basic tenets of long division to an absolutely demoralized, weeping eight-year-old with the utmost care. Oh yes, and I fed them, and I clothed them, and I kept them safe, and I looked into their eyes and I read to them, and I answered, so many questions. That messy kitchen doesn't say I work so very hard for my family because it is a blessing to love and serve them, yet all of that beautiful, holy, invisible labor is unseen and often doesn't count as work. That is cognitive and emotional labor too. But what if, here's my pitch, what if we considered time spent in the service of family as the metric for measuring workload rather than dollars? Both forms of contribution to the family system, both inside the home and outside of the home, must be regarded with respect because both venues of contribution cost the laborer time. 
I want to address the dads in the room really quickly. I'm mostly a nice person. I know this is difficult to sit through. I, this is hard all the time for, for us. Um, so thank you so much for being here on behalf of all moms, all wives. Um, I believe without questioning your devotion to your family. I believe that you are overwhelmed. I believe that you are hardworking. You have your own mental load. Yet this is a bit of a call to arms for you to take some of the burden onto your yoke that your wife is telling you painfully exists, even though it's very difficult to notice or understand it because it's not your particular lived experience. A proactive partnership is required and desired in 2023. Everybody wins so, so much. Everybody wins when dad is involved and has ownership within the domestic sphere. Dads, perhaps some of these little mentioned ta domestic tasks seem insignificant, but we know that those small tasks rapidly add up and have quite the compounding effect on one's time, mental reserves. I think it's the smallest details of home life that can create the greatest problems. Domestic roles and responsibilities to all of us is not a zero-sum game. A rising tide does lift all boats. We are a team together, loving and serving one another, and our family is a collaborative effort. So here's a suggestion for all of us in clarifying and collaborating. It's called the Fair Play Method. So this is a book. This is a whole methodology. The amount of experts that were that she used for research, it was five, about five years of research. There's a Netflix documentary which is terrible. Get the book if you want to learn more. The Netflix documentary is terrible. So the fair play method is a practical framework developed to help a household of any kind rebalance the domestic workload, both the invisible and the visible. A foundational element of the fair play method is that all time and effort in service of the family is created equal. So an hour teaching your five-year-old to tie their shoes and how to pack their lunch, make and pack their lunch, is equivalent to an hour in the office. This should be a bit easier for Christians to onboard with since our target is the eternal, not the dollar. So the woman who developed this um, and authored the Fair Play Method, her name is Eve Rodsky. She and this method are everywhere right now. She's a Harvard-educated lawyer. She went on, went on to have quite the CV, but then when she became a mother, she noticed that all of her female contemporaries were suffocating under this weight of the default parent load for all the things required to run a family in a home. And she observed an imbalance in the anticipation the, in the in anticipation of needs and the ownership of needs between a husband and wife and the trickiness of communicating that. So she thought someone needs to catalog all this domestic labor and then present a solution to making the invisible labor visible and then families can decide how they want to allocate some of the responsibilities, however it suits them. It does not place blame, does not shame. It is an organizational framework to help rebalance as much or as little domestic labor as you'd like. So her goal for solving this gender chasm was to one, make it tangible, and two, make it actionable. That's what she does. So in the back, there's like a catalog, the fair play cards. Do I think that's a little cheesy? Yes, I do. I'm not a particularly like saccharine person. So if you think this is a gimmick, I promise it's pretty, it's been pretty, pretty effective. Um, so she catalogs it. The domestic labor for us, and she says often, we cannot value what we cannot see. She makes the invisible visible. And then the task is for couples to kind of work this problem, work this algorithm together for the balancing of labor that she's made quantifiable. So here's the second part, the actionable step. The core tenet is that every single domestic task has three steps, conception, planning, and execution. So the conception involves the noticing. 
Often the planning has a bunch of subtasks. And then there's the execution, which is execution that's easy to see, right? That's and appreciate because it's more visible commonly. Now the first two steps, however, aren't readily observable. And therefore that's the invisible work, the conception and planning. Here's her pitch. You and your spouse audit this catalog and then you divide up roles and responsibilities accordingly. You divide them up by individual availability. This is not a pitch for 50-50 in the slightest. You divide them up by availability, capability, preferences, but also by the daily grind tasks. So that's what has the little coffee cup. That's what she's saying. Those are the things that must be done daily on repeat. This catalog cites the macro of the tasks and offers practical visualization of all the moving parts required within a home from a very wide angle lens, obviously. So if you have one of those tasks, if a spouse has that task, you have full ownership of the task. And it's your job then to flush out the specifics, what she would refer to as the conception and planning, which is the invisible labor again. If you own the task, it's yours all the way through. Because what is common when clear, full ownership of a task is not assigned, and we know this very well, is you run into marital friction. A common thing is this. The first two parts of the process, that invisible labor of conception and planning, are done by the wife. Well, that is still labor, but she hands off the execution to her husband, who wants to help. But that might be a form of like a honey-do list, or a husband saying, well, just make me a list. Just tell me what to do. But she's still done a bunch of the labor. So this puts the husband in a position of helping her with all of her tasks, when in reality it is your family and home together. So one person is directing, the other person is being directed, and there's a really tricky power dynamic there. So one feels exhausted and resentment, and the other feels demeaned, disrespected, and inadequate. So the offered solution is if you have a task, you own the whole thing. Again, this is not a pitch for 50-50. Y'all can just breathe easy. Um, this is how organizations streamline task allocation. So I'm going to invite Charles up to give practical applications of the fair play method just within our home to kind of color this in so you can get a better idea of what we're talking to talking about. Can you all hear me okay without a mic? Uh, it's on the phone, I think. Let me bring it back. All right, I'm Charles. Um, so, um, yeah, so I was kind of given the, the task of walking you through some very concrete examples of how this has played out in our marriage. Um, so my goal is kind of fourfold with you. We're going to start with talking about some concrete examples. We're going to move on to how do we grow upon these concrete examples. Part three will be challenges I've faced as a dad in this process. And then part four will be the rewards that our family has reaped from this. So, um, concrete examples. Uh, first is, in December, we became the proud parents of a new baby, Claire. Um, she's a hamster, and Kara wanted nothing to do with the hamster, so I took the hamster card. So, I am the hamster parents. Everything that has to do with the hamster goes through me. So, um, when does the cage get cleaned? That's my job. What are the rules around the hamster? When can the hamster come out of the cage? When can the hamster be held? Who gets to hold the hamster? Is there a fight over who's holding the hamster? That's Dad's job. Um, food, are we out of food? I order more hamster food. Bedding, are we out of the bedding for the hamster? So, so by taking the hamster card, as silly as it sounds, I have effectively removed that task from Kara's brain. So, so from her perspective, the hamster does not exist. That's my job. 
So again, it sounds petty, but, but this is just one simple, small example of taking a complete task that was historically assigned to mom and putting that on my plate. Um, next one was uh, a recent birthday party. Our son Jonah just turned 12. Um, I think if our family's like yours, birthday parties have largely fallen on mom. That was mom's job to plan birthday parties, coordinate all the details around the birthday party. Uh, so I took that card from Kara and said, you know what, let me handle the birthday party. So I texted the dads, uh, which was a bit of a challenge because we all had to go back and talk to our wives about the schedule, right? Because mom usually keeps the schedule. So text the dads, pick out the kids that are coming, pick out the place where we're going to have the birthday party, uh, pick up all the kids on the way to the birthday party. Um, when the birthday's party was over, it didn't stop there. There were thank you notes that needed to be written. Uh, did we run out of envelopes or stamps while writing thank you notes? Uh, that was dad's job. So it wasn't just like, you know, Kara plans it all and I take the kid to the party. It was everything that had to do with the party from the beginning all the way through buying more stamps from writing thank you cards went to me. Again, effectively eliminating everything to do with the birthday party from Kara's plate and putting that on my plate. Uh, next one is allowance. So I'm also the allowance parent. The way we do allowance in our family is each kid is kind of given X amount of money. Um, some of that they get to keep in their wallet and they're in charge of. Some of it goes into a savings account and some of it goes into what we call a benevolence fund. So each kid is in charge of their own benevolence fund. So they get to determine, you know, does it go to, um, they have all these lofty ideas about like, you know, an elephant rescue farm in Africa or something. But, but so that, that becomes my job too, right? So I'm in charge of each kid's benevolence fund. Anything to do with their money is, is my job. Um, once again, eliminating everything to do with allowance and money from, from Kara's plate. Um, two more just kind of quick ones. I, I'm the haircut parent, so everything to do with haircuts for the boys. I'm not allowed to touch Charlotte's hair, but everything to do with the boys, I, I handle their haircuts. Um, babysitters, um, I, I'm a physician. We have a unique little like Facebook group for doctors with medical students. So it's kind of easy for me to take that task. Uh, you talked about, um, I think when assigning the tasks, preference was part of it. There was one other word you used, I forget what it was, but it was, it was easier for me to take this task because I know all these people because I work with them. So I handle all the babysitters. Um, those are kind of some, again, very concrete examples of how this has worked in our marriage. Um, these kind of weekly or monthly kind of one-off things are good and they're helpful and they're right to reassign those um, from mom's plate to dad's plate. But what we found is that, that that helps, but that really doesn't chip away at the daily grind. So much of what Kara talked about are the, the, the daily tasks of, of the kids need to be fed lunch now. The diaper needs to be changed now. Um, and, and so that's kind of where we're going next is how can we, and this is where we are in our kind of journey with this, is how can we go from handling these weekly and monthly tasks that I've taken that honestly really weren't that difficult to how can dad take on some more of the daily tasks? So again, some more concrete examples there. Um, the one that we're kind of working on now um, is, is uh, breakfast. So given my job, I'm, I'm usually up and out of the house before the kids are awake. Um, Kara's usually up exercising. That's kind of her time to exercise. And so um, can I get breakfast going before 
uh, I leave. So I get up 10, 15 minutes earlier, kind of get breakfast at least started or going in the right direction, which allows Kara another 10 or 15 minutes to take care of herself, to shower after she exercises. Um, that's a daily task that uh, we're trying to work through now on how can that, you know, again, take a load off mom. Um, are you the, the teeth person? So at, at bedtime, maybe you take the teeth card. You are in charge of making sure all the kids' teeth are brushed um, every night. That is your job, effectively eliminating that from mom's plate. It goes beyond that, though. It's not just brushing the teeth. Are the toothbrushes old? Do they need new toothbrushes? Are we out of toothpaste? Need to order more toothpaste. You own that entire task. Um, last one is I kind of took from Kara's parents. They're, they are the type that need coffee immediately upon waking or it's just things go wrong. Um, so her dad has owned the coffee card. Every night before bedtime, he makes sure the coffee pot's clean. He makes sure there's a new filter. He makes sure the grounds are ready to go. So all they have to do is push that button and boom, they have coffee in the morning. The coffee's getting low, he orders more coffee. So, so that's a card that he has taken to make sure that it's something that his wife doesn't have to do. Um, those are some of the day in, day out tasks that we are kind of currently working through, again, to more properly assign domestic roles to debt. Uh, part three is challenges. Um, so th this has not been easy at all for us. Um, the biggest challenge, you know, from my perspective, from a dad's perspective is, uh, was kind of my response or my attitude toward this when we first started talking about this. So I spent the better part of a decade in, you know, grad school and then medical school and then residency and I come out of residency and, and boom, there's a, a pandemic that, that kind of largely fell on the particular type of medicine that I do. Um, and about that time, Kara's starting to talk to me about the maternal mental load and domestic labor, and my response, at least internally, was, are you kidding me? I, I can't give more. I don't have anything else to give. Uh, i just absolutely consumed by my job, and then when I get home, I'm doing everything I can to do these little tasky things, sweeping the floor, cleaning up after, after dinner, putting the kids to bed. I don't, I don't take care of myself. I don't have any hobbies. What do you mean you need me to take on more of the domestic load? Um, and a big challenge for me, because I, I had a hard time hearing what she was saying. Over months and months and months and years of, of talking about this and working through this, I, I, I understand now that this was not Kara saying, Charles, you're lazy. Charles, you need to do more work. It's Charles, I need you to be more deliberate in what you do. I need you to be more specific in taking these entire tasks from me rather than just trying to guess and pick and choose what I think needs to be done around the house. Um, so that was kind of the biggest challenge that we have had to work through and probably will continue um, until kingdom come. Uh, number two was unlearning our father's behaviors. So, um, you know, if your dad was like my dad, great dad, love my dad. I know that he loved us dearly, um, but he was the son of his father who was the son of his father. And so many of these generational, I guess, kind of norms have just flowed down to us. Um, I read a while back a study that said in um, 1983, which might be the median year of our birth uh, collectively in this room here. Not, I'm much younger than, than that, so, but not me. Um, it was estimated that 3% of dads had changed a diaper. That's our dads. 3% had changed a diaper. Three. Um, 
fast forward until I think it was 2018, 2019, that number rose to 41%, which is still unbelievably low. But, but my goodness, my point is we've made progress, right? We've made progress from what our dads have uh, taught us either directly or indirectly. Um, so unlearning our father's behavior is challenging. Number three, um, the typical dad tasks are flexible, right? So what are those typical dad tasks, right? Well, we keep the yard looking nice, right? Uh, that needs to be done, but it can be done at some point this week. Uh, we need to wash the cars. That's important. Clean cars are nice. But that needs to be done at some point this week, right? The sprinkler head broke. Needs to be fixed, but gosh, we've got a couple days to get that done. Now, we compare that to the typical mom jobs around the house of, well, dinner needs to be done now. We need, you know, the baby is crying and needs to be rocked or fed now. We can kind of see there's a big difference in the, the, the temporal arrangements of typical dad tasks versus typical mom tasks. So working through that has been challenging. Number four, uh, society expects the bare minimum of us. Um, perfect example this morning, I woke up and first thing I did was check MLB.com because the Braves play in the West Coast and I'm not staying up that late to see if my, my beloved Braves won, which they did. And one of the headlines was Derek Jeter, also a Hall of Fame dad. So I, I'm like, well, I'm giving a talk on dads today. Let's see what this says. So I opened it up and the whole article was about how Derek Jeter went to his six-year-old daughter's birthday party. And he took a picture and put it on Instagram that he was at the party. Like, how perfect is that, right? Derek Jeter gets a shout out on MLB.com because he went to his daughter's birthday party. Are you kidding me? Society expects the bare minimum from us. Um, I went to the grocery store with the kids yesterday and um, walking down the aisle, some lady passes by and says, oh, super dad, has the kids at the grocery store. All I have to do to be good is just take them to the grocery store. So, so dads hear that and we think we're doing a good job, but, but that we can't rest upon that. There's so much more for us to do. Um, the last part of the challenges is kind of piggybacking on that. It's what Karen and I refer to as the such a good dad. Again, it, it's the fact that I don't have to do much to be viewed by society as a good dad, right? I can go to a birthday party and take a picture and put it on Instagram. I can take them to the grocery store. Um, that's a challenge that we've had to work through. Um, part four, rewards. Uh, what has our family gained from this? Um, the first point is I, I kind of have come to view this as a working uh, smarter, not harder. So if I were to compare like my role as a husband and a dad in my family now to two years ago, I don't know that I'm doing more work. Uh, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Um, but I do know that Kara feels more valued. I do know that Kara feels like I've taken things off of her plate. And it's largely because I'm not guessing anymore. I'm not guessing at what she needs from me. Um, guessing leads to stepping on toes and it leads to frustration. Having these well-defined tasks has been immensely beneficial um, for our family. And again, I don't know that I'm working more around the house. I think that's a very important kind of take-home point for this. Number two, meaningful time with kids. It's been able, been helpful for me to carve out meaningful time with our kids. The birthday party was a perfect example of that. I loved planning the birthday party. I had a lot of fun doing that. Jonah had a lot of fun doing that. Um, so that was a big reward for us. Uh, number three, and Kara kind of touched on this. This is, this is so necessary for my children to see. I want my daughter to see um, what a appropriate 
paternal role looks like in a family. Uh, and I want her to carry that into the, the husband that she picks someday. Uh, I want my sons to see this. I want my sons to build upon what I've done. I think I'm farther down the road than my dad was. My dad was farther down the road than his dad. And I hope and I pray that Jonah and Benji and Oliver are farther down the road than I am when they are you know, parents and husbands. Um, so them seeing that is a huge reward for us. Uh, and lastly, it's, it's done a, a big you know, work in our marriage. You know, we um, are, are more in sync than we've ever been. We were working together as a team more than we ever been or ever have been. So that's been hugely beneficial for us. Um, that's kind of uh, my talk in a nutshell. I could talk a long time about a lot of this stuff, but that's, that's all we have time for. Uh, my kind of closing point is this should be obvious to us as dads, right? Our call is very clear biblically. It's to love our wives um, and, uh, as Christ loved the church, right? And, and give ourselves up for our wives as Christ gave himself up to the church. That's very clear. Um, and this is just one example of that. Us taking some of the maternal load onto ourselves is a perfect and beautiful example of, of Christ giving himself up for the church. So uh, that's all I have to say. Um, I think that's all we have to say. Um, we wanted to allow some time at the end for questions if, or comments. How has this looked in your marriage? Do you have any questions on how this has worked for both of us? Yeah, I don't travel. My, my schedule is kind of um, uniquely frustrating at times. I, I work seven on, seven off. So I'm, I'm kind of home for a week and then not home for a week. Um, and and I, I think it's important to acknowledge that, right? So each dad has their own set kind of challenges with the system, right? So I'm, I'm very available every other week. I'm very unavailable every other week. Some dads travel a lot and some dads work night shifts. And so, so navigating that's going to be challenging, obviously. Yeah. Sure, sure. So to 
Yeah, great question. Um, I won't, can't say there was a moment where the light came on. A lot of it was from Kara, like just bringing this to my attention. Uh, again, I, you know, I think just kind of the unique challenges of being the physician that you give up a, a good decade of your life where you're, you're absent, you're not really much help. Um, and so coming out of that, you know, Kara sharing this thing with me, which again, I didn't receive well um, right off the bat. It was hard for me. Yeah. Uh, so, so no, I can't say there was like a, an epiphany or one thing that helped me understand that. It was, it was Kara kind of gently uh, teaching me these things. Sure, sure, and, that, and I'm glad you asked that. So there's something we didn't have time for is um, kind of an agreed upon minimum um, level of care, standard of care. Yeah, it's lunchtime. So a minimum standard of care, right? So, right, so involved in that is, so she, so she gives me the haircut task, right? Um, and so Kara says, my expectation is that they get a haircut every four weeks. I said, that's a little ridiculous. They don't need a haircut every four weeks. I'm thinking like every seven weeks because um, they're boys and they don't need haircuts. So, so we met in the middle, right? So we met in the middle and we, so we agreed upon the, the task. We agreed upon the time frame. Um, so hopefully if I'm not keeping up my end of the deal, Kara will say, hey, Charles, hair's getting long. And I'll say, ah, yes, I meant to do it last week. I forgot. Um, oh, sure. Right, right. And I don't want to be reminded. Like, I'm, I'm going to do it when it's my job. I'll do it whenever I think it's the right time to do it. Like, stay out of my business. So. Very back. Yes. Uh, good. Yeah, yeah. Our our kids work. Man, they work. Yesterday was work day. I I, I wrote out a schedule for them. I'm like so, they all had their assigned jobs. Three of them were picking up sticks. Like whenever you're done picking up sticks, you come show me how many sticks you picked up, and I'll tell you if you're done or not. Right. So clubhouse needed to be cleaned. I walked outside with them. I showed them like this is what needs to be done. You come find me when the clubhouse is clean, and I'll tell you if it's done. Those are just two of my examples. Kara does that all day long with them, with other things. They have, they have a schedule of 
stuff that they're supposed to do. Some of our older kids help with meal planning. They have to succeed, budget, everything. They, um, I'm trying to think other stuff. Like one person is at the kitchen tapped in every morning or night. So then that person, and we have three boys, so that's, our daughter is better at it. I think there's something to that. But they have to see what all needs to be done. How do I allocate the tasks? How much time do we have? Because if they take too long, all of them are going to come into their read less time for my dad. So things like that. But they do have their set daily tasks. They have set weekly tasks. And then on family meetings, they have projected like monthly tasks or things. But we're not. This goes poorly often. Don't, don't think that this is like a utopia where our kids are doing all these chores. Like, no, it doesn't go well a lot of times. Uh, Heather. Yeah, that's an area where we, Karen and I, step on each other's toes frequently. Um, and can, can I be candid here? I don't know what you're saying, but yes. Karen and I have um, different levels of expectations for our kids when it comes to academics. Uh, she's far more just naturally intelligent and educated than I am. And, and so she has a higher expectation for their work than I do. I, if they get a B or B plus, I'm, I'm, let's go. This is awesome. Uh, and Kara expects more of them. So school's been challenging for us to do together because I will cut corners and I will not do things the way that Kara will do them. And so there, there have been like kind of set things like nature journal, like on my week off, that was typically the thing. Like I did nature journal and you know, some math here and there, but and we're still working through that as I mean, we've been this for what, eight years now at Veritas and we're still trying to figure out what's dad's role as a teacher, which is limited. What's mom's role as a teacher, which is extensive. We're not there yet. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, you kind of touched on this just kind of holding other as well, but how do you work through if you own something kind of the expectations for how somebody else is doing that? And how does that work out when you know maybe without planning the whole thing together, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that might be the hardest part of this whole thing is that agreed upon standard of care is what would a reasonable human being do in the situation? So um, let's take the hamster, for example. Again, simple examples of, of well, how often would a reasonable human being clean a hamster cage? Right? I, I don't know the answer to that question. It's, I have my answer. Kara has her answer. And let's say my answer is every two weeks and Kara's answer is every week. And then maybe I do every 10 days or something like, okay, is, is 10 days what a reasonable human being would do? If the answer is yes, I have to kind of be okay with that. It's more frequently than I think it should be cleaned. And Kara has to be okay with that because it's less frequently than she thinks it should be cleaned. So it's that, what would a reasonable human being do in the situation? Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. So haircut frequency was one of those things. We had disagreed upon that. We're like, I don't know, six weeks is probably what a reasonable human being would say. We'll go with six weeks or five. I think we said five weeks. I think moms, in, if you do try some your own version of this or experimental method, you need to let there be some turbulence and a lot of trial and error for both of you. And like, oh, they said they were going to take this. So I think everyone should anticipate feeling frustrated. I think that's very reasonable because it's going to have tons of growing pain. Um, but the more you can specify up front 
the suffering thing, any sort of expectations and communications, the better it will go and the more you will mitigate tension or just being like physical mitigation. Yeah. You didn't like taco night, at some point switched to jackfruit tacos because Kara wanted jackfruit tacos. And I'm like, come, come on. <laughs> Are we seriously eating jackfruit tacos? Like, the, But, okay, that, she's in charge of that. That's what she wanted, so I have to be okay with jackfruit tacos. I'd prefer brisket, but... I was going to say, I'm no Jay Seymour. I'm no Jay Seymour. I can't cook. Thanks. Yeah. Well, so like I, we've, what's worked for us, and we've, again, this is infantile stages for us, is like, I'll take a meal. Like, so I have dinner tonight. Like, so Kara doesn't even know what we're having for dinner tonight. Dinner's my job tonight. I have the whole meal. That's why I went to the grocery store yesterday. And, and that's my meal. And so she knows nothing about what we're eating, which is a delicious bolognese. Teach me how to cook, Jay. I need help. David. Uh, I'll say, first of all, thank you for not doing an altar call. <laughs> I was getting ready to use this. <laughs> Massive. I'll just feedback on the really convicted because my approach, I've been really hearing this, just being a re as, as opposed to being a co labor, just being reinforcements. Like, I'm here, I'm on call. When you need me to pick up the phone, I'm here for you. Yeah. Sure. But I have not been strategic about helping not get to that point. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful. So thank you. Sure. And, and on that note, and this has been probably the biggest thing for me to learn is I, I am not Kara's helper. Right? I, I was really good at that. I was really good at being the helper. Uh, but I'm not her helper. I'm the co-manager, like you said. Like I, I have to own my own tasks rather than doing what I think she wants me to do. Sense. Yes. Um, I have another question about um, the author of what is Yeah, I think women have adapted to that skill better because they've been, they've been forced to. Um, do you have any thoughts on like when you know you need to 
give them the task. I'm sure you guys are gorgeous. If I'm like, I'm busy, and he's like, well, I'm busy too, like, how do you know, like, what's appropriate to, like, give? Does that make sense? Like, it's just kind of hard to know, like, well, maybe I just need to continue. You know, we're both busy. I don't know, like, how do you compare? Like, well, who's busier? I don't know. Like, it's, am I saying, am I making sense? I don't think everybody who's in the city helping you just going to bring it. I don't know. I think when you think who's busier, who's working harder, I think you need to run away and decide to Yeah. I think Mills, everyone has that question. Everyone has that experience, right? And like, I, I feel that way. I get, I get angry and frustrated. I'll get home and right when I get home, there's stuff to do, right? And I'm like, I, I just like 40 year old mom just died that I had to pronounce dead. And like, I need time, but I can't bring that home. And then Kara's like, okay, yeah, that sucks that you had to deal with that. But let me tell you what happened with the kids today. And, and that's my children. That's my family. And, and, and she's drowning from a, a Wednesday. <laughs> We all know Wednesdays are tough. And, and so we're both coming into, you know, Wednesday at 6 p.m. not doing well. And both kind of drowning and figuring out who's busier. Uh, like Kara said, I, if you get to that point where you're trying to compare busyness, it's, it's, it's dangerous. But I don't know that there's an easy answer to, to how you delegate these tasks. Like, so cooking is, like, so, is a great example. I hate cooking. I'm not good at it. I wish I was, Jay. But she gives me meals, and I'm like, oh, I have to cook. I hate that, but I'm trying. I'm trying. You mentioned um, hobbies. Yes. You, I know you mentioned exercise exercises in the morning. Have you figured out a way to make time for your own hobbies? We're so bad at that, but we're getting there. Yeah. There's a lot of talk in this kind of culture that we've read about so much lately about you know, typically mom's hobbies are at home, right? So mom gardens, uh, mom on walks around the neighborhood, mom bakes, you know, domestic hobbies, dad plays golf, whatever, outside the house. That, that's, I think that's fairly typical, certainly not fair, right? But that's typical. So that's something that we've tried to... We're still so bad at kind of carving out time for ourselves. Yeah. It's just growing pains. 
I mean, even just two nights, we go on a lot of walks together and our evening walk two nights ago, we were talking about this and I got defensive. I'm like, I I feel the need to remind you that I'm the sole breadwinner in this family and that you don't see anything I do at work. When I'm at work, I kind of cram two weeks of work into one week. So my seven on seven off. So my seven days on, I'm working two weeks of work in seven days. You don't see any of that because I'm at I'm out of the house. I'm at the hospital. You don't you don't know what happens there, and and so I you know I get I, I took that approach which did not go well, um, and and so but again that's just growing pains. It's just again and again and again talking through these things and trial and error and figuring out how this works best for each couple because every couple is different, right? Dad. Yes. Yes. Our our email addresses are on the paper. Um, we're more than happy to email if you all have more questions.